Now we're going to look at sibling rivalry. Sibling rivalry can be very destructive in children. But sibling rivalry is particularly ugly when all the children are over 80 years old. That's when it gets a little embarrassing. They have wrinkles. They know better. Welcome to Mana Bible Lessons. In this podcast, we take an in-depth expository look at the Bible. You're listening to the audio-only version. If you would like to see the video, visit manapodcast.com forward slash watch. And now, here's Brad Hannock. you'd be so kind, uh, family, to turn to Numbers 12. This is going to be a bit of a reality check because today's lesson is about a family feud, which of course we all have on Christmas holidays, right? (laughs) Relatives are the reason for the season because God tests our faith in the incarnation during the season. Uh, especially uh, around the dinner table, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, this is going to be a wonderful lesson, Numbers chapter 12. Just a bit of context. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. It's part of the Pentateuch. Pentateuch meaning five, which means five books. Moses wrote it. He wrote all five. He wrote it right near the end of Israel's 40-year journey through the wilderness from Egypt to Canaan. So the book of Numbers really records that journey. It covers about a 40-year window of time starts when they left Egypt. Actually, it starts at the foot of Mount Sinai. Ryan, it's good to see you, brother. Hopefully the stent's still pumping well. That's good. Yes, that's good news. Good to see family back with us. Anyway, 40 years in the wilderness and the book of Numbers ends when they're right on the edge of the promised land in the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan. So God had intended this journey to take one year, a little over 12 months. And it took them 40 years to do what God intended in one. And that happened because when they got to Kadesh Barnea, which we'll look at in the next year or two, they refused to enter the promised land because of the giants. They said, God, you're big, but the giants are bigger. We believe the giants more than we believe you. We don't have what it takes to enter in. We don't believe that you have our best interests in mind. We want to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. God said, fine. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years total, 38 more years. Uh, and so a one-year journey took a 40-year time frame, and that's us, isn't it? Sometimes we look back and we go, you know, there were a lot better ways to make decisions at those decision points if I would have just listened earlier. Israel had a bad habit of refusing to believe God. They had a bad habit of rejecting his plans for them. So today's lesson, we're going to look at another example, an ongoing example of Israel's spiritual failure. In this case, it wasn't on the part of the people. It wasn't a part of the leaders. Let's pick up the narrative in Numbers 12, verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Here's the principle. It's a sin to reject what God has entrusted to us because we are coveting what God has entrusted to somebody else. 
It is a sin to reject what God has entrusted to us because we are coveting what God has entrusted to someone else. Now, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam are two brothers and one sister whom God had called to leadership positions in the nation of Israel. However, God had made it very clear that Moses was the leader. Miriam, her name might mean actually a number of two or three things. It might mean God's gift. It might also mean beloved. And the last definition of her word I found very interesting. It means defiant. And today's lesson certainly pictures Miriam as defiant against both Moses and God. She's the older sister of Moses and Aaron. So you have Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. Miriam's probably 7 to 12 years older than Moses. We're not told that, but we can infer that. She was the one, you remember, that played the key role in, in rescuing Moses from Pharaoh. When Moses was born in Egypt, Pharaoh was killing all the male Hebrew babies uh, because they were multiplying too quick. And Miriam's mother, Moses' mother, asked older sister Miriam to watch Moses. She put him in a wicker basket, remember, and laid him in the bulrushes by the river Nile. And just so happened by God's providence that Pharaoh's daughter comes along the river to bathe and discovers the wicker basket and Moses is crying. And Miriam comes up and says, would you like me to find a Hebrew nurse to take care of this baby? And Miriam says, do that. And so, Mir I mean, Pharaoh's daughter says that. So Miriam got her mother. And Moses' mother nursed Moses for a number of years until he went into Pharaoh's palace. And he was raised as the crown prince of Egypt, even though he was a Hebrew child. That's where he spent the first 40 years of his life. So you look at Miriam and you say, she's obviously pretty protective of little brother. She's pretty brave. She's quick-witted. She thinks on her feet. She's pretty clever. Eighty years later, Moses, of course, is used by God to lead Israel out of Egypt. And Miriam's got to be proud as punch that her younger brother is the deliverer. And she was the one who saved his life. God used her uh, out, of, uh, uh, out of the river 80 years prior. So the Bible calls Miriam a prophetess, a female prophet. A prophet or a prophetess was one whom and through whom God spoke his word. This is before we had the written word of God. So if God had something to say to his people, he spoke it through a person. In this case, it was Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Miriam was a prophetess. And so God spoke his word through her. She was also a very gifted musician. Remember, after they crossed through the Red Sea and God opened the waters up and they went all through and then the water came back and drowned the Egyptian army. On the other side, Miriam was the worship leader for the whole nation. She led all the women in this great song of praise and dance before the Lord for his mighty deliverance. So Miriam is a woman of significant God-ordained influence in Israel. God says in Micah 6, 4, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. So Miriam was gifted by God to be a woman of influence and leadership in Israel. Aaron's her younger brother. Aaron is Moses' older brother and Israel's first high priest. When God called Moses to lead Egypt out of lead Israel out of Egypt. Moses, of course, you remember in first part of Exodus, gave God all these reasons, six different reasons why he should not be the leader. He was not qualified. He couldn't do this. He couldn't do that. And one of his last excuses was, Lord, I'm not eloquent. I can't speak. And the Lord said, fine, your brother 
Aaron is fluent. He is going to be your spokesman. I'll speak to you. You tell Aaron what to say. Aaron will take my word through you to Aaron and he'll tell Egypt, Pharaoh, and he'll tell Israel, your brothers and sisters, my word and my will. Matter of fact, when you look at scripture, the words and God spoke to Moses and Aaron, both and, show up all the time. So it's clear that God spoke to Moses, but he also spoke to Aaron. Happens a lot in the biblical narrative here in, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Aaron's great moral failure came when Moses was away. Moses had spent 40 years on the top of Mount Sinai. Remember, God called him up there to receive the law. That's when God wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone and gave him the civic law. And he was gone for 40 days. The people of Israel are camped out by the foot of the mountain and they got impatient. God's been gone for a week or two or three and this Moses, he's disappeared. He's not visible anymore. So we need a God and we need a visible God. We need a God we can see. So they came to Aaron and they said, make a God for us. Now Aaron should have confronted them with the word of God who already had told him, you shall make no other gods before me, no idol, but he said, give me all your gold. And of course he crafted a golden calf and led the nation of Israel. He's the high priest. He led the nation of Israel in idolatry against almighty God when Moses is on the mountain. So Moses comes down from the mountain, confronts Aaron. And this is one of the lamest excuses you'll ever hear. He blamed the people, number one. And then he said, he lied and he said, all I did was take all the gold. I threw it into the furnace and presto, out came this golden calf. Just magic. I had nothing to do with this. Right. Clearly, Aaron is a follower of the people more than he's a follower of God. And he's the high priest. I didn't realize how serious this was. When you look at Deuteronomy 9.20, it tells us that God was so angry with Aaron for this, he wanted to destroy him. But Moses interceded for his life and God spared his life based on Moses' intercession. So you have Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, our three siblings, and God chose these three to lead the nation, but Moses was his man. Now we're gonna look at sibling rivalry. Sibling rivalry can be very destructive in children, but sibling rivalry is particularly ugly when all the children are over 80 years old. That's when it gets a little embarrassing. Moses is now 82. Aaron is three years older, he's 85, and Miriam's probably between 90 and 94. They have wrinkles. They know better. Miriam and Aaron rebel against Moses' leadership, and it says they spoke against Moses, which implies a verbal attack. Seems that Miriam is the instigator of this attack, and Aaron went along with her. Aaron was a follower, he went along with his older sister. She's mentioned first, interesting, the verb spoke against is feminine in form in the Hebrew. And most interestingly, Miriam's the only one who's judged by God and disciplined by God. So you, you conclude that she was the leader in this rebellion. Now it's interesting that the protective sister and the prophetess has turned into the jealous rival in the last couple of years. It's been almost two years since they left Egypt. In that time, she's seen Moses under attack by the Israelites who are complaining and whining about no water, no food, no meat, all these other kinds of things. Scripture tells us that Moses was very, very patient. 
I don't think Miriam was very patient. I think she probably thought Moses should be more forceful as a leader, should exercise authority. She probably still saw him as her little brother, not the man of God who God called him to lead Israel out of the land of Egypt. She was a prophetess and her brother Aaron was the high priest. And her question was, why should Moses have the final say? God spoke to me, God speaks to Aaron. I think Moses is on his high horse and I think God should speak through us as well. We want more power, more authority, and more public recognition. Now, in case you're wondering, family feuds in the Bible are not new. It's pretty common practice. So this Christmas, if you have one, you're pretty normal. It doesn't honor God, but it's the nature of human nature. Cain killed his brother Abel. Esau plotted to kill Jacob. Joseph's brothers were going to kill them, but they showed him mercy and only sold him into slavery. Absalom tried to kill his own father, King David. Jesus' own family thought he was insane and wouldn't follow him, refused to believe him as the Messiah. By the way, nothing will test our spiritual maturity more than our relationships with our own family. That is the test. Much easier to love a stranger because they will leave <laughs> or you can leave them. Family, you know, the old tale is told back in the day when the, someone asked somebody from the Czech, Czech Republic, actually it was just state of Czechoslovakia then back in the 50s, what do you consider the Russians to be? Family or friends? He said, family, of course, you choose your friends. The problem here became that Miriam attacked Moses over his marriage to a Cushite woman. It seems likely that Moses' first wife, Zipporah, he had married 42 years before, had died, and his second wife was a woman from the land of Cush. Rob's going to show you a picture, an image of where this is. It's often translated, if you in the KJV probably that you have, it's translated as Ethiopia. It really includes regions of southern Egypt, and uh, uh, south of that, which is Ethiopian Sudan today and maybe even parts of Somalia in, in, in current modern-day mass, but it's south of Egypt. Clearly, Moses' wife was not Jewish. She may well have been black. From God's point of view, skin color or race is completely irrelevant. God himself is the creator, remember, of every ethnicity, race, color, people, group, language. God designed, look around, everyone's features, shapes, sizes, gifts, abilities, exactly as he chose. God loves variety. Every time I come here, I'm amazed at the variety. It really is remarkable when you think about it. God created diversity because he wants to look at diversity. He created all the colors because he likes color. We see color down at the bottom of the ocean that we have not seen for six and a half thousand years of recorded history. And you say, why would God put color at the bottom of the ocean? Because he likes to look at it. See, we think it's all about us. Actually, God creates what he likes to look at, right? That's why he created you and I. Every single person's made in God's image. Jesus died for the sins of the world. So Moses may well have married a black woman. From God's standpoint, interracial marriage is comprehensively irrelevant. What God cares about is interfaith marriage. God had commanded the Israelites, do not marry the Canaanites. Do not marry the Moabites. They are idol worshipers, they're Satan followers, and they hate God. 
And God did not want his children to be led into evil by marrying followers of Satan. And the same is true of Christians today. What did Paul say? You're free to marry whoever you want, but in the Lord. Marry someone who's following Jesus, or you're going to have trouble in River City. By the way, I don't know that Miriam figured this out, but showing contempt for your brother's choice of a spouse is not a good family policy for holiday gatherings or family potlucks. General rule of thumb, your family members are going to choose who they choose to marry. And this is real practical. There's going to be a lot of things your families choose that you may not agree with. And you know what the solution is. Talk to God and zip it. Does that make sense? They're not going to listen even if you think your advice is the most brilliant stuff since God's word was written. <laughs> Talk to God about it. You can tell him anything, but you can't tell him everything. Miriam and Aaron had not learned this. Now, we don't know whether Miriam's a closet racist or a religious bigot, but most likely she didn't want a woman, any woman, having influence in her little brother's life. Remember her position. She's a recognized prophetess. She's got an honored position. She's the older sister of the man whom God speaks to face to face on Mount Sinai. She's the oldest sibling in this family. She's got significant influence in Moses and Aaron's life and in Israel. She also may have felt her status is slipping because remember last chapter we talked about the fact that God sent his spirit on 70 other leaders in Israel. Moses said, I can't carry this load by myself. God said, fine, bring 70 leaders, bring them to the tent. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit on them. And he did and they prophesied. So now there's 70 more people that have the Holy Spirit, not just her brother. So a little leadership dilution here. She might have been feeling threatened. The initial reason given for her verbal attack on Moses was his marriage, but that was a pretext. The real issue is pride, power, jealousy, and envy. She influences her younger brother Aaron to join her, and together they begin a gossip campaign to influence others. And here's their line that they're passing around behind the scenes, behind the backs, in the nation of Israel. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? Where did we hear this in Genesis 3? Has God indeed said, Satan will always try and cast doubt on God's word? The reality is Miriam and Aaron are jealous of little brother Moses' authority to speak for God. They're also jealous that when Moses speaks, two million people listen. That's public recognition, that's power, and they want the power and the authority to declare God's word as well. Their real beef is not with Moses, it's with God. And their real problem is, has nothing to do with Moses' wife, it has to do with jealous pride and coveting. They were not content with the roles that God had assigned them. They want what God had given to somebody else. And in that sense, they were like Lucifer. Now known as Satan, Lucifer had been given the most exalted position of any creature in God's whole creation. Lucifer was the anointed cherub that covered. He literally was behind the throne of God and covered the throne of God. He was also the worship leader of heaven. He ran the heavenly choir. He was the prime minister of heaven and he was the closest to God's throne. And yet he coveted for more. 
you couldn't have any more as a creature than he did. He was the highest of all the creatures, but he wanted to be the creator. Five times he says in Isaiah 14, he says, I will, five times. By the way, I will are words you will never hear in heaven and they will fill the halls of hell. Here's what Satan says. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. That's the angels. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. The north is the position of power. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. That is the genesis of all evil on planet earth. It is self, it is I. This craving to be the supreme authority and not be subject to anyone is the essence of pride. And Lucifer wanted God's position and Moses and Aaron, I mean, Miriam and Aaron, they want Moses' position. They want the prestige, they want the praise of the people, and they want the glory of being subject to no other human being. What they were really doing is rebelling against the roles that God had appointed them to fulfill. You know, this is so practical for us because Satan every day will attempt and will try to tempt you to reject God's plan for your life because it's not big enough, grand enough, large enough. And he will always tempt us to put ourselves first. He will always tempt us to exalt ourselves and not submit ourselves because he hates submission and therefore he will tell you, just like he told Eve, you too can be like God. You too can be large and in charge. People should obey you. You should not have to obey anyone else. Now, when we're tempted with that, we have a choice. We can either give into that or we can surrender that temptation to the throne of God and say, Lord, you're in charge and I'm not and I'm being tempted to puff myself up and I humble myself before you right now because you're God and I'm not. That's a choice you have to make. Or you can buy the, drink the Kool-Aid and say, yeah, you know those other people, they should do it my way. And you already know people in your life that they're filled with their own opinions and they really think that if you were intelligent, you would do it their way, right? Some of them share your last name. <laughs> in complete contrast with their attitudes, Moses is being described as the most humble man on the face of the earth. Verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. God told Moses to write those words. Here's the principle. God uses humble people who submit to him and serve others. God uses humble people who submit to him and serve others. God, by the way, put this in the text for lots of reasons, but one of them was it made sure that Moses wasn't saying God only speaks through me. Moses was entrusted with vast power because he was vastly humble. By the way, another translation you might have in your Bible says meek. Moses was the meekest man in all the year. Meek means power under control, right? Power under God's control. A meek person, a humble person, is under God's control. Their spirit is submitted to the spirit of God, and that's a willful decision you make multiple times a day to submit. The word humble really means low. It talks about low, lowly downward position as opposed to pride, which wants to puff up and elevate. So 
humble is a lowly attitude. Humility is submissive to God. Humility serves others. Pride lifts up the self and puffs up the self like yeast. Humility lifts up God. Humility lifts up others, not the self. It's a completely different orientation. Humility is a prerequisite for the proper use of power. And God entrusted Moses with a great deal of power because he was vastly humble. By the way, good news. Humility was not Moses' natural temperament at all. By nature, Moses was a strong-willed hothead. I mean really out-of-control, impulsive hothead. When he was 40 years old, old enough to know better, on impulse, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he turned around and killed him. Just killed him. Buried him in the sand. Thought he'd get away with it. Didn't get away with it. Had to flee for his life. When he was on top of the mountain, Mount Sinai, been face-to-face with God for 40 days, got the tablets of stone. He's come down. God wrote on the stone with his finger the Ten Commandments. He sees the golden calf, and he gets so angry, he throws the tablets of stone down the rock and shatters them in pieces. Even very late in life, we're going to find out in a few more chapters, children of Israel whining and complaining, just like our children do, just like we do, and God says... Go to that rock, speak to it. I'll bring water out of it. Moses is so angry, he takes a stick and he hits the rock and he says, shall we bring water for you out of this rock, you blank, 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 blank? Cost him entry into the promised land. God said, because you didn't treat me as holy, you're not going in the land. So Moses learned humility and he learned humility through the discipline of dependence. You can write that down. I didn't say I liked it. I said it's true. We learn humility through the discipline of dependence. And the way we learn the discipline of dependence is God puts us in the desert where we don't have any choice but to depend on him. Moses spent the first 40 years of his life in Pharaoh's palace, learned all the military skills, learned all the linguistic skills. Great military commander, Acts 7, tells us that. And you think, wow, this guy's getting positioned to be the crown prince. He was the crown prince. He kills this Egyptian and he has to flee for his life. In the second 40 years of his life, he spends time squeezing sand between his toes, shepherding sheep in the desert. And they're not even his own sheep. They belong to his father-in-law. How'd you like to work for your father-in-law for 40 years? That's what Moses did. Last 40 years of life, he's still a shepherd, except now he's shepherding people. And they're a lot harder than shepherding sheep. If you think sheep are stupid... Shepherding people and shepherding sheep require vast amounts of humility and vast amounts of patience because they're very, very difficult. God had told Moses to identify 70 mature godly leaders who could share the spiritual burden with him because he was underwater with this of 2 million people. It says that God put his Holy Spirit on them and they prophesied. And there were two men that didn't even come out to the tent of meeting to receive the Spirit. They stayed back in the camp, but they still received the Spirit even though they were disobedient. And Joshua is all concerned. Joshua says, Lord, or Moses, they're prophesying in the camp and they didn't go out to the tent of meeting. Restrain them. Shut them up. Moses was so not into position. He was so not into prestige that he told Joshua something that we should remember. Numbers eleven twenty nine. He says to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake 
Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit upon all of them. Here is a man who wants God to be exalted in the lives of God's people, not himself. And you know what's utterly intriguing to me? This happened in Acts 2. We all have the Holy Spirit of God at the moment of salvation, permanently. Moses' prayer got answered in the New Testament. So Moses is, Moses is completely concerned with God's glory, not his own position as opposed to his brother and sister. We know that, among other things, because Moses is so humble he doesn't even defend himself against Moses and Aaron. He remembered what God had told the entire nation a year before when they were trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. God led them into this trap so he could show his power. He led them into a trap where the Egyptians are behind them, the deserts are on both sides, and the Red Sea's in front of them, and they can't go anywhere. God led them into that trap. And they're whining and crying. And in Exodus 14, 14, God told Moses, and Moses told the people, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. See, our tendency is to try and defend ourselves. It really is, isn't it? When you're under attack by someone, our natural tendency is, I'm going to defend myself by all means necessary. And I've got lots of means. We fight with our mouth. We fight, I mean, we do lots of things. Much better to let God defend you. He will do a much better job than you can. And his timing is impeccable. The last sentence in verse 2 is absolutely critical. I'm going to ask you to, Underline it. If you look at verse 2, the last sentence, and the Lord heard it. He's talking about the attack on Moses. That should give you and I great comfort. The Lord always hears everything. He hears those who gossip about us. He hears those who attack us. By the way, he hears us when we gossip and he hears us when we attack God hears those who edify others. God hears those who curse him and those who praise him. He hears everything you and I say and he hears everything you and I think. Moses could remain silent because he knew that God had heard it all and that God was going to take care of whatever God chose to take care of when he needed to, when he chose to in his perfect timing. And God's now going to vindicate Moses' servant. Verse 4, you need to put your depends on 4. <laughs> Suddenly, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three come out to the tent of the meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had come forward, he said, hear now my words. Is there a prophet among you? If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. Underline that. He is faithful in all my household. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? When the Lord calls you his servant, that is very rare in Scripture. No more than a dozen times are anybody called the servant of the Lord twice. 
Moses is my servant. Here's the principle. God appointed Moses as the leader over Israel, so opposing Moses meant opposing God. God appointed Moses as the leader over Israel, so opposing Moses meant opposing God. I wonder what the three of them were thinking when the word of the Lord says, come to the tent of meeting. This is not discipline at a distance. This is not God speaking from the top of Mount Sinai. God's coming down in the cloud to the tent of meeting, and he's going to have a nose-to-nose, face-to-face conversation with you for judgment. And God says, listen to my words. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the southern slope of Mount Hermon. He's going to show them his glory. It's been shrouded in his physical body. He's going to show them his glorified state. We call it the transfiguration. And they see Jesus in this glorified state, blinding white, radiant light, and they're terrified. And this cloud comes down, indicating the presence of God because God appears in a cloud to shield us so we won't die. Peter then opens his mouth and gives his opinion about what should be done. And the Lord's voice comes out of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In other words, stop speaking your words. Start listening to my words. He's telling Miriam and Aaron the same thing. Miriam and Aaron, stop attacking my servant who I appointed to lead this nation. Moses was not elected by the people. This is not a campaign to run for office to lead the people. I, God, chose Moses myself. When you attack my servant, you attack me. And Moses is unique. Because when God speaks to all the other prophets, he uses a medium, right? A medium called a vision, a medium called a dream. But he never talks directly to him. But Moses is faithful, and God speaks to him directly, mouth to mouth. That means open communication. No need a sign, don't need a symbol, don't need a riddle, don't need a mystery, just plain speech. I speak with Moses with nothing between us, no mediator. Exodus 33, 7 says, Now God, the Moses, used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Verse 9. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. So God says, not only do I speak directly with Moses face to face, he's actually seen the form of the Lord. Now, we don't actually know what he saw, but in Exodus 33, there's this great sin of the people. They build this golden calf. God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. Moses, I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to build a nation you. Moses intercedes for the people. God says, I'll forgive them according to your word. Moses says, show me your glory. I mean, Moses wants more intimacy with God. Exodus 33, 20, but God said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, this is a theophany. A theophany is any time in the Old Testament where Jesus Christ visibly appears before his incarnation in Bethlehem. Just be aware in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father and the Holy Spirit are always invisible. 
Never in Scripture do you see the Holy Spirit. Never in Scripture do you see the Father. The visible manifestation of Almighty God is always Jesus Christ. He is always the visible revelation of God. So Moses saw Jesus Christ, but with great, great, great precautions, because if he saw him directly, he would die in a sinful state. So God says, look, in light of Moses' unique relationship with me, he asked Moses and Aaron, Miriam and Aaron, why are you not terrified to speak against my servant Moses? You're speaking against me. You're rebelling against me. To attack Moses is to attack God because I chose, God chose Moses as leader of the nation. To rebel against God's appointed authorities, to rebel against God himself. We know that. Romans 13 says, I don't like this verse. My flesh, my pride, my sin, but it's truth. So we obey even what we don't like. Verse 1. Every person, Brad Hannock included, is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. That verse was written when Nero was emperor over the empire, and he was evil, insane, debauched, wicked beyond description. And God told Paul, write it down. No authority exists except by my approval. All authority on heaven and earth has been established by God. So opposing human authority is opposing God. By the way, it doesn't mean you can't question authority if you need to understand something. Certainly you can. It doesn't mean you shouldn't confront evil in leaders. You should. Absolutely. Matter of fact, Whenever human authority commands us to disobey God, we are told to disobey that authority. Peter and John were hauled before the Sanhedrin for preaching Jesus Christ in Acts 4 and doing miracles, and the Sanhedrin said, shut up about this man. You're making us feel really guilty because we killed him. Speak no more in the name of Jesus. And they said, we must obey God rather than men. So you have every responsibility when human authority is doing wicked things, we have a responsibility to speak against it because we must obey God rather than men. Matthew 18, of course, gives us the biblical procedure for how to confront somebody, but Miriam and Aaron's behavior was not godly. It was jealousy. It was coveting Moses' position and public recognition. How does God respond to their rebellion? Verse 9. So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. There's a lot in that phrase. Verse 10. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Verse 13, Moses cried out to the Lord saying, Oh God, heal her, I pray. Here's the principle. Everyone needs a mediator who intercedes with God for their sins. And Jesus Christ is our mediator. Everyone needs a mediator who intercedes with God for their sins. And Jesus Christ is their mediator. 
You want to know how serious sin is? Look at how God responds to the sin and the consequences he imposes. That will tell you how serious the sin is. In Numbers 5, a few chapters before, God had already commanded Moses, if anyone in the camp is found to have an infectious skin disease, they are to be quarantined outside the camp so they wouldn't transmit and spread their infectious disease to the rest of the people. Leprosy was an infectious disease. We used to think it was transmitted by touch. It's actually transmitted by coughing and airborne particulate matter. So a leper was quarantined. They were cut off from the life of the community. By the way, outside the camp was a place where all the sin and uncleanness, all the latrines were outside the camp, all the sick people were outside the camp. So outside the camp was where sin was and evil and sickness and all that stuff. Of course, Jesus Christ was crucified outside the camp, right outside the city of Jerusalem. Miriam got poetic justice, I guess, on several levels. She pursued the limelight inside the camp, and she wound up being banned in obscurity outside the camp. She hungered for more status inside the camp, and she got public shame outside the camp. A leper was mandated to cry out, unclean, unclean, every time they came around people that were not infected, identifying themselves as unclean. The Hebrew word for leper, serat, it's S-A-R-A apostrophe A-T. S-A-R-A apostrophe A-T. It refers to ritual defilement. And it includes a broad range of skin diseases. It can include boils, carbuncles, fungus, infections, impetigos, scabies, eczema, skin ulcers, and so forth. Today, we don't call it leprosy anymore. It's called Hansen's disease after the doctor that began treatment. Today, Hansen's disease or leprosy, very, very curable. Very curable. In ancient times, it was a death sentence. It not only killed you physically, it killed you socially, it killed you religiously, it killed you economically. You couldn't associate with people. You were cut off. You couldn't go into the temple, tabernacle to worship. You couldn't be around God's people. You couldn't go to church, so to speak. Tough to work. Leprosy is a bacterial infection. And what it does, it re results in skin lesions or skin sores, and they can be very, very disfiguring in advanced stages. So when you see someone with advanced leprosy, they're very disfigured. I actually was gonna show you a picture and I thought I'm not gonna do that. So if you wanna look it up, you can, but I'm not gonna show you one. The problem with leprosy is it impacts the nerves in your skin and so you lose sensation. You lose the ability to tell if you've been burned or cut or abraded or bruised. And so if you don't feel the pain, you don't treat it. So infection can set in and some really bad things can happen. Historically, many lepers suffered from blindness because they couldn't detect grit in their eyes. So they wouldn't get the grit out of their eyes. And so infection sat in and led to blindness at that point in time. So Miriam is struck with leprosy, but a very advanced stage of leprosy. She's already massively disfigured. I mean, when you look at Aaron's description, she, her face is half eaten away. So this is severe judgment from God. That's how he viewed rebellion. And he is shocked. And he is the high priest. And it was his job to diagnose, the priest's job to diagnose if someone had leprosy, it was his job to pray for the people, to intercede. It was his job to offer sacrifices to make atonement for their sins. But he can't intercede for Miriam because he's an accomplice. 
He's a co-conspirator. He took part in her sin. He rebelled against Moses too. So instead of being a mediator, now Aaron, the high priest, needs a mediator. Who does he go to? A little brother. He turns to Moses and he pleads for forgiveness. He says, my Lord. He acknowledges their sin. He says it's foolishness and it's sin twice. We've sinned against God. We've sinned against Moses. He humbles himself before God and his brother. And if you doubted that Moses was humble, this is proof. His own brother and sister attack him. They are judged by God. Brother asks him to intercede with God for their healing. And Moses says, I'll think about it. Is that what he says? It says he instantly prayed for those who had attacked him. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. So Moses is a living out, if you will, a type of Christ. He is intermediating. He's interceding. He's the mediator between God and man. He's the mediator between God and God's high priest. He's the mediator between God and the woman who's a prophetess, his brother and sister. I know you have family members that are hard to love. You might be one of them. But Moses intercedes for them immediately when he's attacked, which is what Jesus did. Jesus is the mediator for the world. He is the God-man. He is the one, as Pastor Roger said so eloquently this morning, who goes between holy God and sinful man and reconciles our broken relationship if we place our faith in him and not ourselves. And you and I cannot forgive sin, clearly. But we are called to intercede with God for each other, correct? That's why we pass out prayer requests every week. Have you ever thought that maybe your prayers matter in heaven? I prayed for Rotary once years ago. Holly was in Rotary for years, and I had a guy come after me, and he says, you know, when you pray, you act like somebody's really listening. Yeah? Yeah? There is. It's called God. Himself listens, and he craves to hear from his children, just like you want to hear from your children. How do you respond when you, the phone rings and it's your grandchild? How do you respond? Do you go, heart goes pitter-patter? Are you thrilled to hear from them? So why would your heavenly Father not love to hear from you daily? He longs to hear from his people. And we can pray for each other. It's one of the greatest privileges in the world is pray for each other. It's one of the greatest ways to love each other, to intercede for each other. Verse 14. Moses cries out to God, and God says to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterwards she may be received again. Verse 15, so Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. Afterward, however, the people moved out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Here's the principle. Even forgiven sin contains disciplinary consequences. 
Seeking honor instead of humility leads to a loss of influence in God's kingdom. Even forgiven sin contains disciplinary consequences. Seeking honor instead of humility leads to a loss of influence in God's kingdom. So Aaron confesses their joint sin. Moses intercedes for God, for them, to God. God forgives them, but there's still consequences. The Jews had an inherent abhorrence of spitting. It was filthy. To spit was just filthy. It showed utter contempt. To spit in someone's face, the very image of God, was abhorrent. You would not do that unless they were involved in sinful behavior that was just outrageously, abhorrently bad. I mean, it was, a, it was contempt on a basis that we don't really understand. So God said Miriam's behavior is worse than that, far worse than that, and shows he's excommunicated outside the camp for seven days. You know what that means? Two and a half million people don't get to move on for a week. When people say sin doesn't matter, sin only affects me. Doesn't hurt anybody else. It does hurt everybody else. It damages the body of Christ any more than you can say, well, I can whack this part of my finger off and it'll just hurt the finger. Won't hurt the rest of the body. I mean, it's just a little part of the finger. Try lopping off the end of your index finger and see if the rest of your body doesn't suffer, right? Well, we're the body of Christ. When there's sin, it damages all of us. Two and a half million people had to wait because she didn't control her attitude. Instead of being an example to follow, she became a warning to avoid. Don't do what Miriam did. And she had to live with this shame for the next 40 years. 38 years. So Miriam and Aaron belong to God's family. God corrects his children through discipline. The purpose of God's discipline is to penalize, is not to penalize, it's to purify. So when God disciplines his children, he wants to purify us. He's not trying to penalize us. He's trying to shape us to be holy. Made us in the image of Jesus and we're commanded to submit to God's discipline. Hebrews 12, 5 says, My son or daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges. That means beats every son whom he receives Verse 8, but if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, and there's a street name for that that some old translations use, and not sons. Verse 10b, he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. He's making us like Jesus. Those outside God's family, those who don't know Jesus, they don't repent of their sins, and so they're not disciplined for their sin. They're punished for their sin. There is no redemption in punishment. Hell is about punishment. Opportunity's gone at that point. We are God's children, and when he disciplines us, he is training us. He's correcting us to make us like Jesus. Miriam's discipline, she was disciplined and she was restored, and her Reason for being disciplined is she sought honor for herself. It was arrogant pride. Instead of humbling herself, she decided to exalt herself. 
the position of influence she had in the land, she lost. Just like Lucifer lost his position of influence in heaven and became the great adversary because he wanted to be like God. Miriam had phenomenal leadership authority in the land and she lost it all because she refused to be content with a position that God had called her. And Aaron almost lost his life over it. See, humble service will always increase your influence. You want more influence in God's kingdom? The way up is the way down. Humble service like Jesus. Prideful ambition will always destroy your influence in God's kingdom. So for us, the application is pretty simple. We must be faithful whatever positions God has called us to. And he's, all, he's called us all to serve him. Whatever position you are called to, whatever role that the Lord has called you to is precisely where he wants you. And he's gifted you to fulfill that exact calling and it counts. It doesn't matter whether anybody knows. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Submitting to God and serving others, especially serving members of your own family, is a powerful testimony of the reality of Jesus Christ. This holiday season can be a very, very difficult time for many people. It's not always a season to be jolly. Even for Christians, this can be a difficult time because you're spending a lot of time with people. Maybe they're good for a couple hours, but they may not be good for a couple of days, right? So your patience muscle is going to get exercised. Your service muscle is going to get exercised. Your choice to reflect the love of Christ by serving those you love is going to get exercised. Your ability and willingness to intercede for people is going to get exercised. It's a good season to practice the lessons that we have been given here. Let's review this and then Marty will come up and lead us in, in, in prayer and praise. Here's the summary principles we want to remember. It's a sin to reject what God has given us because we're coveting what God has given somebody else. Satan will always tempt us to say the grass is greener on the other side of the hill. Always. You know where that came from. Number two, God uses humble people who submit to him and serve others. God never uses the proud other than as a warning and as an object of judgment. So God uses humble people who submit to him and serve others. Number three, God appointed Moses as the leader over Israel, so opposing Moses meant opposing God. We have leaders over us who we are commanded to pray for. I didn't say the Bible says agree with. You may be praying for people you personally don't like. You may be praying for people that are doing wrong things. So pray that they would do right things. Pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to them. Pray that they would give their life to Jesus and start behaving well. Pray that God will give them wisdom to lead wisely and well. Number four. Everyone needs a mediator who intercedes with God for their sins. And Jesus Christ is our mediator. And we have the privilege of interceding for each other. When these prayer requests come out during the week, make sure you pray for them. I know, I know, I know your schedule is busy. When you stand before the throne of God... There's a whole lot of things in this life that we chase that will mean nothing. 
and the time you spend face to face with the king for your brothers and sisters is precious eternal time. You are being privileged to do eternal business at the throne room of Almighty God when you pray for each other. Lastly, even forgiven sin contains disciplinary consequences. Seeking honor instead of humility leads to a loss of influence in God's kingdom. Okay, blessings for coming. Thank you for listening. And may God, um, may the Holy Spirit continue to remind us during this week uh, about how we are to live in light of what we now know. Lord willing, next week we'll carry on in Numbers. I don't know if we're going to get to Deuteronomy or not. We just may spend 12 weeks in Numbers. There's a lot of meat and potatoes here. So thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. Love you all. Have a blessed Christmas. And now that you know, do. You've been listening to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Mana Bible Lessons on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. Mana meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. For more information about the podcast and class, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for joining us, and now that you know, do.